Howdy, howdy, howdy. This is Pastor Spencer. I hope you're doing well. This is the story of the Old Testament, walking through the Old Testament scriptures, uh, learning about uh, the God who reveals himself to us as his people, and he's our God, and uh, we are in the book of Exodus, aren't we? And uh, this is week eight for the week of February 19th through the 25th. This week we are reading Exodus chapter 15 through chapter 24, as well as Psalms 36 through 40. And so uh, this week we are um, looking in the aftermath of what God has done. Last week we saw how God redeemed his people, how he uh, brought them out, right? We saw um, how he brought those plagues upon Egypt. He redeemed them. He rescued them. And then after that, uh, he he, uh, brought them through the Red Sea. We saw how God's salvation is perfect and how he uh, powerfully redeems them. Uh, out of bondage. And this week, though, we begin in chapter in chapter 15, which is the beginning of a song of praise, where we have uh, Moses uh, leading God's people in praise, where he, the song of Moses, uh, we're told where he says, I will sing to the Lord. He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Moses here is praising God, celebrating the redemption that God alone accomplished, the redemption that Israel doubted, the redemption they didn't deserve, the rescue they could not achieve on their own is the rescue and the redemption and the salvation that God's people rejoice in and celebrate uh, right now. And we see Miriam celebrating as well, um, and God's people Uh, led out, and God is now leading them to the mountain that he's told Moses. Remember at the very beginning, Moses told him, or God told Moses, um, this is going to be a sign for you uh, that, that I'm with you. I'm going to bring God's people. I'm going to bring Israel out from Egypt, and they're going to worship me on this mountain, the mountain that God's speaking to them uh, from on the bush, uh, from the bush, the burning bush on Mount Sinai. And so now, The journey in Exodus is now from the Red Sea through this amazing, amazing uh, 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 redemption through water that destroys the Egyptians but saves the Israelites. Now it's to the mountain they go, to the mountain to worship God where a covenant will be entered into, a marriage ceremony of sorts, um, because uh, often in the Old Testament, Israel is pictured as the bride of the Lord. Uh, she's pictured as the, the bride of God. God is the husband and she is his bride. And so she is now being led by God to, um, not to a chapel, but to the mountain, to the holy place, where she will be covenanted together with the Lord God of Israel as her husband. And that's what's happening. So now we're on our way to Mount Sinai. Now, of course, we were th- we might think, all right, so Israel finally, finally, they've doubted. They've doubted God repeatedly already. They don't believe God's words, that he's going to redeem them, and he does it anyway because he is more interested in their salvation than they are. And we might expect that the next time any kind of trial shows its head, the Israelites are ready to believe and trust in the Lord and know 
Listen, we don't know how we're going to get through this, but we do know this. The Lord has promised us that he will be with us and lead us. But then what do we read? What do we read? That God's people begin complaining and grumbling. In verse chapter 16 and in chapter 17, they start grumbling. This is a uh, first thing we're going to read here is from Tim Chester. Uh, he's got that book that we've got on baptism in the Lord's Supper. A very good book if you're interested in learning about baptism in the Lord's Supper. I highly, highly recommend it. Um, it's very good. Um, but he's got this this section here on Exodus 15 through 17 called Our Grumbling Puts God on Trial and Finds Him Guilty. He says this, people who moan really annoy me. People who go on about their petty problems or the failings of the government or the state of the roads or the behavior of young people or old people, don't they realize how privileged they are? It really annoys me. The worst are those people who moan about people who moan. Let me make my irony explicit. As I grumble about grumblers, I turn out to be the biggest grumbler of all. But of course, that's what we often do. We think of grumbling as something other people do. What we do is make justified complaints or offer constructive criticism, but we don't grumble. We make ourselves the exception, but the reality is that most of us grumble, and some of us grumble most of the time. And the section of Exodus in chapters 15 through 17, out on the eastern shore of the sea, is about grumbling. We get three examples of it. Chapter 15, verse 24, so the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what are we to drink? Chapter 16, verse 2, in the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. Chapter 17, verse 3, but the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. It's sometimes said that most Western societies are three days of empty shelves from civil disorder. We appear to live peacefully together, but if something went wrong with food supplies, then it would only take three days before rioting and looting broke out. That's certainly how it was among the Israelites. The Israelites have been rescued from Egyptian slavery in the most dramatic fashion. They have seen the hand of God parting the Red Sea and defeating the Egyptian army. They have sung, the Lord is my strength and my defense. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people whom you have redeemed. But all that was three days ago. Today, they're hungry and they are grumbling. When we think of it like this, the Israelites grumbling is ridiculous and inexcusable. But then think about your own life. Perhaps you sing of God's unfailing love on a Sunday morning. But three days later, or maybe three hours later, you are grumbling. Think of all the things that God has done for you. Think of all he has promised to you. But think, how, too, how easily you lose a sense of perspective. Think how much better you are at seeing what you do not have than what you do have. All we see is bitter water. All we see is our problem or lack. We can too all, all too easily think of grumbling as harmless, but grumbling all grumbling, including yours, is toxic. It's toxic for two reasons. First, grumbling grows because it spreads to others. It's infectious. Think how these grumbling conversations unfold. We spread discontent. We reinforce one another's grumbles. This is why it's so important to cut it off at the root. We need to challenge one another when we grumble. We need to say, stop, don't talk to me about it. Go and talk to the person concerned, or go and talk to God, since he sent the circumstance about which you are concerned. None of us are immune to the contagion. Someone else's grumbling gives us all the excuse our hearts need to indulge in it ourselves. Notice there's a suggestion in 17 verse 4 that even Moses caught the grumbling bug. Second, grumbling grows because it hardens our hearts. Grumbling presumes to put God to the test 
It scrutinizes God. It questions his goodness. We become the judge and God is in the dock. Grumbling puts God on trial and finds him guilty. He has failed to deliver the life I want. I deserve more than this. I need better than this. Think about that for a moment. When you grumble, you are judging God. Is that really what you want to be doing? In the Lord's Prayer, when Jesus teaches us to say, lead us not into temptation, it's the same word as testing in Exodus 15 through 17 in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. We are to ask God to help us not to test God so that we trust God. How do we test God? By putting him on trial for not running the world the way we would like. God sent the plagues on Egypt so that Egypt might learn that I am the Lord. This is the refrain of the story of the plagues. Egypt failed to learn that lesson and was ruined as a result. Now Israel is having to learn the same lesson that I am the Lord. They must learn what Pharaoh learned, failed to learn. Otherwise, they will receive the judgment Pharaoh received. Ultimately, and tragically, the generation that left Egypt failed to learn that lesson and died in the wilderness. A central theme in the story of the plagues is the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Here we find what leads to a hardened heart. Grumbling may seem a small thing, but it leads to a hardened heart. And a hardened heart leads to ruin. When God provides in a manner that does not accord with your preferences or your timing, be careful. You will want to grumble. Instead, take the opportunity to trust God rather than to test him. And and so what Chester here is writing to us is so important, isn't it? Because we see this pattern over and over, and it's going to come again in the book of Numbers. God's people are going to grumble against the Lord, test him, uh, question him, wonder, is the Lord among us or not? Does he really care? And they begin to doubt God. And that such is the arrogance that we have that we're so prone to doubt God before we would ever doubt ourselves. And so now let's, pres- let's keep going here because they doubt God, right? And part of the big thing that God does is he sends bread from heaven in chapter 16, manna. And this food is the, the bread of angels. It's the bread that the father sends down to his hungry and starving and needy people so that they can be nourished and find strength and give, be given life by the hand of God. God here is teaching them the basic principle, isn't he, that man lives not by bread alone, but by every word, every single thing that comes from the mouth of God. Ultimately, by dropping the bread from heaven, he was seeking to lead them to the fact, the important truth, that they really, it's not even the bread they depend upon, it's the God who gives the bread that they should look to. Next, let's look here at Exodus chapter 16. Food is grace. This is by Irene Sun. She writes this, we eat lest we die. Hunger is a powerful and persistent reminder that we are not God. We are not all self all sufficient. We need food in order to live and stay alive. Food is not a reward in scripture. Food is grace. In this world, food is often a reward for doing something good. We reward children with lollipops if they behave at the doctor's office. We reward ourselves with desserts at the end of a long day. In contrast, God feeds his people when they least deserve his kindness. Unlike the way of the world, the Lord meets the needs of his people by feeding them food before or after they disobey, and sometimes even as they are rebelling. Think of some of the often told stories about food in scripture. God rained bread from heaven after Israel grumbled and complained. An angel baked warm bread over hot stones as Elijah was running away from Jezebel. 
Jesus fed the 5,000 men after Herod murdered John the Baptist. Jesus served a Passover meal on the night he was betrayed. And after his resurrection, Jesus grilled fish and bread on the beach for his disciples, who had denied him and ran away. What do they have in common? God's people do not deserve to be fed. Food is not a reward for good behavior. In his grace and mercy, the Lord invites undeserving sinners and rebels to his table. Food declares that life and salvation come by grace alone. We are invited to come to the table by faith alone, not by our works or worth. The Lord gave us visible signs to teach us his invisible attributes. Food embodies God's goodness, gifts that God's people do not deserve. Food declares the steadfast love and faithfulness of God. In eating and drinking the Lord's provision, visible things, we taste and see his grace and mercy, invisible things. Within days of the deliverance at the Red Sea, God's people began to groan and grumble. They accused God of bringing them to the wilderness to kill them with hunger. They are not asking God for food. They assume that God's purpose was to harm them. They witness God's protection and their own salvation. Still, they do not trust God, and they do not believe that he is good. God responds to their complaints and accusations with the promise of bread. Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. As a mother of young children, this is a perplexing response. Moms know we should never give in when toddlers throw tantrums. The Israelites do not deserve to be fed. But God promises more than bread. Why did the Lord say that he will rain bread from heaven? Why not say bread will appear with the morning dew or bread will cover the ground? Why describe the sending of food in this peculiar way? God is not sending a normal kind of rain. There is a neutral, desirable kind of rain, the kind that Elijah prays for during the famine. But here in Exodus, God is sending a different kind of rain, the rain of judgment. Matar, this word for the rain of judgment, is the way the Lord sends rain during the time of Noah for 40 days and 40 nights because the earth is filled with violence. Matar, this judgmental rain, is when the Lord rains sulfur and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah. Matar is when the Lord rains hail on Egypt when Pharaoh will not let his people go, destroying all that it fell upon. Matar is the rain of judgment when God steps into human history and stops evil and violence. Instead of bringing a flood, hail, fire, and brimstone, the Lord rains bread. Bread gives life. Bread sustains. His people need to eat or they will die. Instead of, desert, instead of destroying his people, God sends them judgment that gives life. Instead of death, God gives them mercy. The Lord feeds his people in order that they might know him. The Lord rains visible bread to teach them his invisible attributes. He withholds the punishment they deserve and feeds them sweet bread that they do not deserve. Judgment and mercy are needed together in the bread of heaven baked and transformed into wafers of honey, sweet flakes that fall from heaven like snow and seeds. For 40 years, their daily bread descends with the morning dew. God's people are given the dignity to choose him. Will they trust or reject his word? Let no one leave any of it over till the morning, Exodus 16:19. When the people trust and obey, they find new bread every morning. Some do not believe God is going to provide, so they hoard. Manna turns into maggots. Maggots are found on carcasses. Maggots are signs of death and decay. God's people must choose life or death. In many cultures, food and feasts are often associated with celebrations, but in Scripture, God's table is first a place of repentance. 
We cannot love God the way he loves us. God needs nothing. He is all-sufficient. Our affection is weak and frail. Yet he gives us the dignity to respond and to choose him. He provides a way for us to meet him and accept his love. So God sits a table and he calls us home to come. He, his table is a place of daily communion with Christ, daily repentance and rest. His table may be set in the wilderness. It may be on the battlefield in the presence of our enemies. Through the fire and the waters, he is with us. He gives us himself. Repentance is turning away from our own way. Repentance is turning toward God and coming before his presence. Repentance is a joyful, vivid, and strong acceptance of God's judgment and forgiveness. Repentance is not a passive acquiescence. Repentance is not a lazy, dull, and miserable compliance. We attend his banquet with great rejoicing. Empty-handed, we come home. Safe space statements are becoming quite common. This is a safe space. There is no judgment here. This is a judgment-free zone. In God's presence, however, because he is a holy God, his very presence exposes my unholiness. In his light, his brightness exposes and judges me. Does this mean God's holy presence is not a safe space? We hate human judgment because human judgment is reductionistic. We reduce each other down to our sin and label one another according to stereotypes. We compare people. We compare ourselves to others. Safe space without God is only a contract between humans. I will not talk about your sin if you don't talk about my sin. For humans to say this is a judgment-free zone is not a promise to love. God's judgment is not like human judgment. God's judgment looks like the cross, where the judgment of God meets the mercy of God. At the cross, God's judgment falls on Christ, and Christ lays down his life for us. Safe space is where forgiveness and pardon is free to anyone who believes God's word and trusts that he is good. The Father prepares a feast for rebels and sinners to come and eat with him. Take, eat, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Safe space is where sins and offenses are forgiven, not ignored, not swept under the rug. Safe space is around the Lord's table, beneath the cross of Jesus. Safe space is the wilderness between Egypt and the promised land where the Lord is our shield and our defender. This is not a judgment-free zone. The Lord rains down judgment that gives life, the bread from heaven. Under the reign of King Yahweh, we are truly safe. He is our refuge. So come home. To serve the Father is better than to eat the pods with the swine. Confess with the prodigal son, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Our Father runs to you and invites you to his rest. He has slaughtered a fattened calf. He has prepared a feast for his sons and daughters. We eat lest we die. And that's so true, isn't it? That, that we live by God's grace. We, he gives us himself and he portrays himself as that um, wonderful giving God who gives us all that we could ever need or ask or desire above all we could ever ask or think. So God brings his people eventually to the mountain. And we see that then in Exodus chapter 19, um, God's people, um, 
And you know the the story. God uh, opens up and says, the Lord calls to Moses to come to him and says, um, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nations and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And so he tells his people to get ready for this encounter, for this um, marriage ceremony, so to speak, with their uh, God, with God, who is kind of like a husband to them. And uh, he tells them to be prepared to consecrate themselves, to uh, devote themselves wholly uh, to this entrance into this this new commitment, this covenant that God is going to make with uh, the people. And here we, I want to think with you about this idea of proximity to God from uh, Charles Spurgeon. Um, he's actually using this from uh, Psalm 148, verse 14, which says, for the people of Israel who are near to him. And now as we read in Exodus 19 here, God's people are being drawn near to God, even though we see the, the trumpet and all the warning and remember, don't touch the mountain lest you die, all of those things. And yet they are told to come as near as they can within limits. And this is what Spurgeon has to say about proximity uh, to God. He says this distance and separation were marks of the old covenant. When God appeared even to his servant Moses, he said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet. And when he was revealed himself on Mount Sinai to his own chosen and separated people, one of the first commands was, you shall set limits for the people all around. In the sacred worship of the tabernacle and the temple, the thought of distance was always prominent. The majority of the people did not even enter the outer court. Into the inner court, none but the priests might dare to intrude, while into the innermost place, or the Holy of Holies, the high priest entered but only once in a year. It was as if the Lord in those early ages was teaching man that sin was so utterly loathsome to him that he must treat men as lepers put outside the camp. And when he came closest to them, he still made them feel the extent of the separation between a holy God and an impure sinner. When the gospel came, we were placed on quite another footing. The word go was replaced with come. Distance was replaced with nearness. And we who previously were far away were brought near by the blood of Christ. Incarnate deity has no firewall around it. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, is the joyful proclamation of God as he appears in human flesh. He no longer teaches the leper his leprosy by setting him at a distance, but by himself suffering the penalty of the leper's defilement. What a state of safety and privilege is this proximity to God through Jesus. Do you know it by experience? If you know it, you are, living in, are you living in the power of it? This closeness is wonderful, and yet it is to be followed by a greater nearness still, when it shall be said, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. Lord, haste the day. And so here God is drawing near, and we can see that even though he draws near, as Spurgeon points out, relative to the New Testament, um, it looks, we can still see the separation. It's not as complete as it would be in the New Testament, because God was showing, I want you near me, and he's teaching them about the way in which he's revealing Christ to them in the Old Testament. But he's also highlighting the fact that 
the sacrifice hasn't happened yet. And so Israel needs to experience what it means for God also uh, to, to be holy. So here, let's see now. So God brings the law to his people. At Exodus uh, uh, 20, he speaks the Ten Commandments to them. And this is a very important um, uh, thing because uh, he, he enters into this covenant. He opens up in verse 1. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And it's very important. The first word of the law here is actually a gospel word in verse 2, where God reminds them, I did this for you. I loved you. I am your God. I rescued you. I brought you out of Egypt. I set you free. I broke your chains off. I redeemed you from your master, the oppressor, Pharaoh himself. Therefore, because I've done all of these things, you shall have no other gods before me. So what God here is doing is right away at the very beginning, Notice the way the gospel works, this law relationship with law and gospel. In the believer's life, it is because we have been redeemed that we now want to obey the law. We don't, Israel did not get the law in Egypt, and God did not say, All right, I will redeem you, and I will bring you out, and I will set you free. If you will have no other gods before me, if you will not make a carved image, if you will not take my name in vain, if you will remember the Sabbath day, if you will honor your father and mother, if you will not commit murder or adultery or steal or bear false witness or covet. He doesn't say that. It's not an if then statement. It's a because therefore statement. Because I've redeemed you, because I've brought you and rescued you miraculously like and carried you on eagle's wings because I've loved you so much, because I've rescued you and ransomed you with a strong and a mighty right arm, because I've been victorious and trampled the Egyptians in the sea, the horse and their rider, throwing them into the destructive waves of the ocean, because of what I've done for you. Now, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's what he's saying, isn't it? It's what he's saying. That's what Jesus says in the New Testament. If you love me because of what I have loved you, because of how I've loved you, you will keep my commandments. And that's what God is telling Israel right now. Because I've loved you so much, now keep my commandments. That's so important in the Christian life because we want to flip that the other way. And we often want to think, if I do my part, then God will do his part. That's not the way the Bible works. It's not the way it works. We are sinners. And that were, there was a covenant with that kind of connotation made long ago. And we broke that covenant. And um, it's, it's, it, we can't redo it. Um, so this covenant, while on the one hand, there is a, there is a couple of aspects going on here. On the one hand, um, God is, uh, there's a severity here. We see the lightning and the thunder and the trumpet and the smoke and the mountain and the shaking and the terror. That's intended to shock Israel because the law, the law, which says do this and live, we're supposed to hear that and be scared. That's the purpose of the law preached. And whenever we're preaching 100% law like that, we are to preach it that way. You need to do these things and then live. And Israel had to see this and experience this. Why? Because they needed to remember who they were apart from the grace of God. 
They needed to remember that and experience that, and they did. And you and I still, as Christians, have to still hear that law message so that we are reminded of our sinful, the remaining sin in our lives and the who we were before we came to know Christ. Because otherwise, we will get a really big head. And what God is doing is lovingly taking a pin, a needle, and pricking the balloon of our head so that we're brought back down to size. Now, also, on the other hand, he's showing them the law as, as, a, as a convicting thing, but also there's the law as a guidance rule for God's people. So he's saying, because you've been redeemed, now here's the law. Here's how you can love me. And so both things are kind of going on here with the Mosaic Covenant. It's not one or the other. Uh, both aspects are, are here um, because both Israel needed both. Just like, honestly, oftentimes today, we need both. We need the law still to be preached to us uh, so we can be convicted of sin. But we also want the law preached to us uh, as the way in which we can walk pleasing to God in the gospel, uh, or, or because of the gospel, I should say, um, because of what God has done for us. So after they've experienced presence with God, we see this in verse 18 of chapter 20. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. This next section here is is called The Cocktail of Worship and Doubt. It's by Chad Bird. Many things happened on the day Yahweh stood atop a mountain named Sinai. A thick cloud dressed this desert crag in the color of goth. Thunder bellowed from deep within the blackened mist. Jagged arrows of lightning hissed through the sky. Suddenly, the sound of a trumpet blasted through the air, blasted through the ears of the Israelites, and sets their hearts to quivering like dead leaves in an autumn wind. I imagine some of them wished they'd had brought a change of underwear. They were so petrified when God began to speak that they pleaded with Moses to ask God not to utter another syllable. Many things happened on the day God stood and spoke atop Sinai. The Israelites shook in their boots, yes. They fell on their faces, yes. They begged God to stop speaking, yes. But one thing did not happen. No one doubted that this was God. Fast forward several generations. Once again, the Israelites are at a mountain. Only now there are a dozen of them, minus one. The 11 followers of Jesus are in Galilee, at the mountain where Jesus has sent them for one final rendezvous. These men know Jesus. They've seen him heal the nastiest of diseases, sat at his feet while he wowed everyone with his wisdom, even ate some fish with him after his resurrection. Yet, on this climactic day, as he prepares to ascend back into heaven, when they approach him atop this mountain, what happens? Matthew sums it up in six words. They worshipped him, but some doubted. Matthew 28, verse 17. At Sinai, they worshipped Yahweh, but no one doubted. On this mountain, they worshipped Jesus, but some doubted. And these, in these two instances, we see how we see our, how we ourselves react to different sides of God. 
When we are conceived, Sinai is born within us. The law is inscribed in our hearts as sure as the Ten Commandments were chiseled onto dual chunks of stone. We may deny it. We may bulldoze the law beneath several feet of dirty excuses, but it's still there. The should and shouldn'ts, must and mustn'ts, shalts and shall nots are as much a part of our DNA as hair and eye color. We all know and believe the law. Our conscience hears that internal word of accusation and direction every day. It is thunder and lightning and trumpet blasts in our souls. It is inescapable and undeniable. Lie though we may about it, no one truly doubts when it comes to the law. But on the mountain in Galilee, where we encounter a very different side of God, doubts overtake us. Why? Because the Lord we encounter here seems too good to be true. All our lives we are warned that there is no such thing as a free lunch. Yet there stands God, in the flesh, offering everything to us with the bill, and even the tip already paid in full. He doesn't say, do this and I will take care of you. He doesn't say, love me and I will love you. There is no deal to be hammered out, no T's to cross or I's to dot. He simply stands there, the love of God incarnate, claiming us as his own. When we are conceived, the gospel is not born within us. There is no good news written on our hearts. It is a message from, that comes from outside us. Not in a thunderous boom, not in a trumpet blast, but in the still, small, weak voice of a dying God upon the cross who says, Father, forgive them. Forgive them for shattering every commandment that I ever uttered. Forgive them for treating each other with such meanness and spite. Forgive them for making excuses for their loveless words and actions. Forgive them for fashioning idols of every good gift we have given them. Forgive them even for hammering these spikes and thorns into my body. Father, forgive them for doubting, not believing, even denying our existence. And he does. He does forgive for his son on that cross bulldozes Sinai. All the commandments of God are kept when what is not kept is forgiven. That's from St. Augustine. The law that God demanded of us, he now demands of himself. And the punishments that God decreed for those who break it now break out upon his own body. The lawgiver becomes the law keeper. The judge becomes the criminal. And us, we do nothing but witness the audacious act of a God who pays the very price he had demanded of us. We worship this God, but some doubt. Yet even that doubt is covered at Calvary. This Jesus is a God that is easy to doubt because he is a God who tells us what we find so hard to believe. He loves us who are so good at being unlovable that he will go on loving us despite our ongoing failures. O Lord, we believe. Help thou our unbelief. Flood the fires or even the glowing embers of our doubt with the waves of your grace. So God continues to speak to them. He reveals to Moses these other laws before eventually we get into Exodus chapter 24. And we see here Moses, right? He confirms the covenant. He takes this blood and he reads from this book and he takes the blood and throws it on the people and says, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. This is Exodus chapter 24. This is called Covenant. This is by Michael Horton. Anyone who is employed or has a mortgage, credit card, or car is familiar with contracts and the blessings and curses that they impose. Not all legal agreements are the same, of course. A contract differs significantly from a last will and testament, which can make you a beneficiary of someone else's estate. 
You benefit not by a work-for-hire arrangement or a payment program, but by a gift. Similarly, there are different kinds of covenants in the Bible. Reformed theology has discerned in Scripture three overarching covenants. The covenant of redemption is the agreement of the Father, Son, and Spirit from all eternity to elect, redeem, and call the people, with the Son as the mediator. Adam was made the federal head of the human race in the covenant of works, and Jesus Christ is the federal head of his new humanity in the covenant of grace, which includes believers. And he also includes and their children, which we would disagree with, but uh, um, we would just say it includes believers. In Adam, we inherit guilt and corruption leading to death, and in Christ, we inherit justification and new birth leading to everlasting life. The background of biblical covenants is international politics. The most obvious parallel was the treaty that a great king would impose upon a lesser king or a suzerain and a vassal on the basis of having liberated him from an invading army. Obviously, the vassal was in no position to negotiate the treaty, but simply accepted its terms or stipulations, as well as the suzerain's pledge of support for obedience and threat of destruction for disobedience, its sanctions. We see this pattern clearly in the relationship God established with the human race in Adam. As God's image bearer and vassal, Adam was promised the right to everlasting life, the tree of life for himself and his posterity, if he fulfilled his trial and was threatened with death for treason. Just as a king is the federal head of his kingdom, Adam was the federal head of the whole human race. And when he broke this covenant, we fell with him under the curse of guilt, corruption, and death. However, from Genesis 3.15 on, God's surprising announcement of the gospel unfolds in history until he fulfills his promise in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Our last Adam, Jesus fulfills the trial and wins for his posterity the right to eat from the tree of life. With his evangelical promise in Genesis 3.15, God established a covenant of grace, no longer on the basis of law, but of promise, and he established a church that began to call upon the name of the Lord. Unlike the original covenant with Adam, in the covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15, God makes all the promises, and in a surprising vision, passes through pieces of several animals. As part of the secular treaties, the great king made the vassal pass through the pieces, accepting the stipulations and sanctions. But here, God assumes full responsibility. The same unilateral promise is evident in the covenant that God makes with David. Although he and his heirs will be unfaithful, God will never fail to keep a Davidic heir on the throne until the heir greater than David himself assumes it. While the gracious covenant continues, at Sinai, God also makes a covenant with Israel as a nation. Individual Israelites are still justified by grace through faith in the coming Messiah, but the nation's status in the land is temporal and conditional. At Sinai, God made no promises, but as the suzerain who had liberated Israel from Egypt, he simply delivered the terms and sanctions, blessing, long life in the land, and curse, being cut off from the land, sent off into exile. Israel accepted the term, saying, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. The blessing or cursing of the nation depended on Israel's faithfulness. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant, Hosea 6, 7. As God's attorneys, the prophets brought God's case against the people for violating this national covenant. 
Whereas God passed through the pieces to secure the Abrahamic covenant of grace, he delivered a different message and said that he would make Israel pass through the pieces and bear its temporal judgment through exile. Jeremiah 34, 1 through 22. Nevertheless, on the basis of the Abrahamic covenant of grace, renewed in the new covenant, God promised a new creation and a new exodus based on the forgiveness of sin. Jeremiah 31. When Jesus inaugurated the Lord's Supper in the upper room, he declared, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Instead of a covenant of law, do this and you shall live, it is a covenant of free mercy. Unlike Moses, he did not dash the blood on the people, confirming their oath, but pledged his oath in his own blood. He alone passed between the pieces, bearing the judgment on in our place. It's a gift, just like a last will and testament. In fact, this is just how the book of Hebrews contrasts the old covenant with the new. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 15 through 22. Hebrews speaks of the unchangeable oath that rests on God's promise rather than on human activity. Paul, too, contrasts the covenant of works and the covenant of grace by appealing to the Abrahamic covenant, works reward versus faith gift. The later Sinaitic covenant could not annul the earlier Abrahamic promise. So, therefore, as we think about this, as we think about this as me now talking and wrapping up here, as we continue to uh, think about this covenant and its role here, we see that it has a unique place in redemptive history. It's different than the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant and the new covenant. It does preach Christ, but it also has this conditional element in it that is intended to convict Israel and to help us to see the fact that um, all of us as humans cannot keep the law by ourselves. Israel here is like, as Paul says in Galatians chapter 3 or 4, they're like an underage child who is put under a tutor. Um, and sometimes teachers, they can, uh, especially back then, they could be pretty harsh. And it would look like, boy, is this this child here, is uh, he a slave? But um, as Paul points out, um, he's actually the heir of everything. So uh, as an underage child, Israel here is being disciplined and taught in a way appropriate to their place in history so that they will learn their need of the Savior that all the sacrifices point to, that all of the promises are going to fulfill, and so that they will trust the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to bring about the sacrifice that he has promised and that can alone take away all of their sins. Okay, well, next week we're going to be in Exodus chapter 25. Um, and through 31, we're going to see uh, the uh, building of the tabernacle. God tells them, build a house for me um, because I'm going to live with you. Um, we're going to live together. And um, we're going to see that. Um, so Israel has entered into this covenant. And we're also going to see in the coming weeks, Israel, has, uh, Israel is going to quickly break this covenant and break faith with the Lord. Okay. Well, let's now turn our attention to a, a psalm, a recording. Uh, this week, we're going to look at Psalm 40. Listen to a recording. This is from poor Bishop Hooper again, uh, Psalm 40. Let me read a little portion of Psalm 40. Uh, a great psalm, one of the uh, a really good one. It says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps 
secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. I hope you enjoy this. I look forward to being with you next week. And we will close with this this, uh, song here. And uh, take care and God bless.
just that.